0: Welcome to Authors Unbound, a podcast connecting passionate readers and passionate writers. I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Patrick Davis, publisher of Unbound Edition Press. Today, we're meeting with Stefan Ferris, who's an accomplished queer legal scholar and activist attorney. His work has been published widely, including in Harvard's LGBTQ Policy Journal, and he's written this incredible memoir, Blue Movie, which is a harrowing memoir about addiction and recovery, sex work, and it's riveting, and it's deeply feelingful and
1: uh, beautiful, even though it's it's also really edgy. Peter, I'm so excited that we get to talk with Stefan Ferris today, because As you said this book is um is harrowing there are things in here that are hard to believe um, in and of themselves and it's hard to believe anybody could go through them and survive them much less have the capacity to write a really beautiful book there's this sort of core tension i think in the book of some really terrifying subject matter, but some really lyrical prose. And it's the tension between those two that I think makes the book so compelling. Um, And I'm looking forward to hearing what Stefan has to say about that.
0: I agree. You know, the book has already garnered a couple of wonderful reviews in Kirkus and also the Bay Area Reporter, in which Jim Pachata talks about this incredible ability that Stefan has to write this very serious, grave book, and yet also to have a hopefulness and a humor and a uh, a kind of lovely grace.
1: It's the right word. I think part of his journey of recovery was finding that grace for himself and, and finding the courage not just to tell his story, but to start again and to start again and to start again. Like so many recovery narratives, there is not a straight path or even a path that always goes upward, there are potholes in the road to recovery. And he documents those as fearlessly as he documents and celebrates the triumphs. I had the pleasure of spending uh, some solid time with Stefan over the last couple of days uh, in San Francisco, where we launched Blue Movie um, at this great cabaret called Oasis. Uh, And the crowd was lively. It was absolutely packed. He's in some corners considered very controversial, but clearly is also deeply loved by his community um, and his fans and his supporters who showed out in great numbers for uh, his debut reading and really brought the house down. I mean, it just erupted in applause as he was reading passages from this book, which is made up of 77 scenes um, from, as the subtitle says, The Life of a Sexual Outlaw. He certainly lives by his own rules and uh, breaks, breaks many of them along the way, but somehow has found a way to reconcile all of that in between the covers of this book. So our guest today on Authors Unbound is Stefan Ferris. <laughs> Stephen Ferris. He is an activist, queer attorney, and uh, many people may know him as adult star Blue Bailey. And those two personas have come together in a new book called Blue Movie, Scenes from the Life of a Sexual Outlaw. And uh, we're excited to talk with Stefan today. Uh, Peter, we decided to publish this book at Unbound Edition Press about a year ago and uh it's just come out and i know you and i both think some powerful things are happening in this book how have you uh, been thinking about it since it came out it's such a powerful book and i think that you got a really good review stuff in, in the bay area
0: reporter and i thought that you know unlike uh, a lot of reviews the the reviewer really um got what you're doing and there was one there was one paragraph in particular where um he said, the book concludes with open-ended ambiguity, a dark, unfinished manifesto of stark desire and desperation, but also one of hope and curative possibility. And I I love how he puts that because I think one of your incredible talents as a writer and one of the virtues of this book is to hold very different tones at the same time, to... Uh, 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 you know, there's a very serious tone, a grave tone, a life at risk kind of tone. Uh, there's also humor. There's also joy. And I love that. Uh, I mean, I think it it shows real artfulness and also um, just deep humanity. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess just generally
2: in life, like I like to approach things with a little bit of a sense of humor and and being serious, but also not being serious at the same time, and uh, I don't know, kind of being a little tongue in
1: cheek with things. How did how did you find that? How did you find that balance between, you know, stories where literally your life is at risk, you're you're engaged in some self-destructive behaviors, and you're aware of that, yet at the same time, you're able to step back as a writer and sort of say, "Holy cow, that was." was wild if maybe necessary for where you were in life at the time and and you're able to sort of shake your head at yourself and say what in the world was i doing how'd you find that balance when writing the book i think it probably all started as like
2: a defense mechanism uh when i tested positive for hiv uh it was very easy to of maybe be a little self-degrading and kind of find humor in the situation and laugh at myself as a way to take power from others uh rejecting or laughing at me and i think that just kind of style evolved and spread out through all areas of my life where uh i can talk about really like hard and kind of dark things if i'm the one talking about it i get to frame it and if i get to frame it through like a tone of kind of like humor or <laughs> do a little a little self deprecation then it's then it's fun and it takes power away from others doing it it i think presents something in a new light and i think presents something in a way that is easier to digest for people the book could be a little triggering i mean we we came up with a disclaimer for it so i think like approaching it with humor and in that way
1: helps with in that regard it's a really good point we should we should share with listeners and readers if you choose to purchase or read blue movie it it does have mentions of self-harm of suicidal ideation of of heavy drug use and multiple forms of sexual assault um these are not light subjects though they're they're actually treated very beautifully and one of the things i wondered about in the book as i was reading it is again that balance between not maybe just the dark and the and the deflecting humor as you said but how to take such serious subjects and treat them with such beautiful language. There are passages in this book that are absolutely lyrical. Um, and how did you find as you were writing the book, um, sort of the beauty in just the act of reflection? Um, what was it like as you were drafting it to sort of find voice for what had previously been desperation? So
2: I I pretty much started writing the book uh, when I kind of reworked my uh, recovery program. So most of the book was written probably within the first six to eight months of kind of exploring sobriety. Um, And in that time, because I wasn't using substances and life had slowed down a lot, uh, it was a time to kind of reflect on things in the past that I kind of moved too quickly to process. Um, it was nice to go like revisit parts of my life, go through my emails, like revisit the correspondence between Treasure Island Media and and other people to really sit down and process uh, what happened in the past. And then in terms of, I guess, the tone and uh, the voice, I really admire and respect, like my favorite authors are uh, Brady Stanellis and Chuck Palahniuk, and I love how they they are very detailed and like give you all the very terrifying specifics of a certain situation. And it kinda adds an authenticity, I think, to the story. So I very much try to to channel that into my voice and also uh, my love for horror movies. Um, I'm obsessed with horror, I've always been. And I think a lot of the experiences that I've lived could be seen as like kind of like horror movie type experiences. I think a lot of gay men and a lot of queer men are attracted to uh, the horror genre, because I think we are we have different experiences and we see ourselves as others. And that was something else that I wanted to infuse in the book.
0: One thing that you use in the book, and that is also another kind of balancing act in the book that I think is beautifully handled, is the interaction between the text and the pictures. I think I'm right that this happened during the editorial process. And uh, I wanted to to point particularly to page 134 and 5, um it's, to me, one of the most really moving parts of the book. There's this this note that Sean has written you uh, asking you, please, not to use. And next, and it's at the point in the book where you're, uh, you're at a real turning point. You're starting a kind of turning point. It's not all there yet, but it's happening. And right next to it is this beautiful picture. So I was wondering, um, what, what was it like to work with images and text? I wrote with no kind of
2: intention of having pictures to kind of match up uh, the text that was there. So I guess the pictures were more of a secondary thought. So I kind of just went back and looked at pictures that I thought were kind of indicative of the different times that I talked about in the book. And
1: that was one of them that kind of matched up. The Kirkus review, which was really beautiful and positive, just just as Jim Pachata's review was that P- Peter referenced. Said that this book pulls no punches as it shocks and enlightens. And it's the enlightening part that I, I'd like to focus on because I think the vulnerability of really telling an unvarnished truth. I mean, the the courage it has taken to write a book like this that you're not hiding. There are no, you're out of the shadows and you're telling the full truth. And i think part of that vulnerability is coming through in these photographs that you know this is a real person this is a real life your baby pictures are in here pictures with your mom are in here pictures with sean are in here and you've really put your life in between the covers of 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 this book and i'm wondering what it was like to write from right from and right through such vulnerability. Was that something that was present with you as you were writing? Were you aware of sort of the risk you were taking in the writing? Certainly there's been really risky behavior um, when you were using, and this is for listeners and, and readers, this is very much a recovery narrative, though, though quite a literary one. Um, it's not a self-help book, though I think it will help a lot of people um were you aware of the risks just in the amount that you were sharing so i think you were the
2: one who gave me the advice that was basically um for the manuscript just get everything out and then really as you're editing like give a second thought of of what you want to remove and not let the audience see um, and I took that advice to heart. I think I put everything out on paper. It, again, was like a, a form of therapy. It was a way for me to process a lot of these emotions for myself. I think a secondary just benefit of, of getting it out and being vulnerable is it's, I was doing all these things. Like some people knew to what extent others didn't. And I'm sure there was talk to some extent around the different activities I was doing. So in a way, me kind of taking full ownership of them and releasing them again kind of like reverses the power dynamic and kind of gives me the power back and i think gives me a way to frame it and i think a lot of the the kind of fantasies and a lot of the the things i talk about about drug use aren't really talked about in recovery and a lot of queer men have these thoughts and desires uh but they're so taboo and stigmatized that they don't talk about it and i think when we start to talk about it It may help other people understand and find community. And it also may help take some
1: power away from how dangerous these ideas and concepts may be. I think that's a really powerful notion and you've noted it a couple of times now, of sort of reversing the power dynamic and by embracing the truth and owning it, not denying it. Um, I think that's part of what gives such vigor to the, to the text here. The book is written entirely in, um present tense um which certainly increases its sense of looming danger and of of a horror story that we're watching in real time i also wonder about you know that decision of yours as a writer to write in present tense where that came from i mean initially the the book didn't start like
2: that it it started as a collection of essays uh that discussed porn hiv substance use and recovery and kind of in those essays, I interspersed my life story to talk about kind of larger concepts. Um, and then I think as we moved through the editing process, we decided to be like kind of inspired by my work and career in porn and kind of restructure it and present the form of the book kind of as a movie. And in doing so, that's when um, the tense of the voice changed the present tense to give the reader, like you're not reading a chapter, you're reading a scene. And when you're in the scene, everything's happening immediately which I think is great. It kind of adds to the tone of the book.
1: It's a book in 77 scenes. There are no chapters. uh, There's even a soundtrack that goes with this book of scenes that you curated to kind of bring another dimensionality to it, which I thought was really inspired. And so it's a pretty immersive experience in, in reading this book. As you mentioned, you had a career in adult entertainment, but You're also an activist attorney. Your most recent work has been published in Harvard's LGBTQ policy journal. What's it like to bring those two persona together in one book? And I imagine there was a time maybe you tried to keep them separate and maybe sanitize one part of your life and protect it from another part of your life. Um, What's it like to have those reconciled uh, within one book? I think when i started law school uh
2: there was definitely a fear that i would not pass the bar uh on moral character grounds based on uh my work in adult entertainment uh, i soon found out that really you really only have to worry about crimes of dishonesty um like crimes about like fraud and uh and not, pop, uh, not paying child support ironically um and i was chatting with a mentor one time um about what to list on my resume because I have a lot of extensive community service. Um I had prior publications and articles under the name Blue Bailey talking about prep and sexual health. I'm like, can I list these things on my resume for like a law firm? Can I list volunteering for Folsom Street events? Um and my mentor basically was like, Your your resume reminds me of mine kind of in the 80s where like I was wondering should I put gay organizations on or would that be a reason for people not to hire me? Uh, and at the end of the day, he said, if you have to kind of censor who you are, you're not going to be happy at that place. Uh, and I think towards the end of law school was when I started to kind of break down the divide between Stefan and Blue Bailey. I had separate Facebook accounts. I kept everything separate. I didn't mention both names in one article. Um, but towards the end of law school, I started merging the identities and like referred to myself as Stefan, aka Blue. And that is now fully manifested in the book i've I've, in, I've been inspired uh by like traveling and going to uh different events where gay men have have merged their passion for the community with their business like like david lauderstein he's like always traveling and promoting nasty pig and it's both business and fun and he gets to like merge his both identities into one and not have to silo anything i really admire that
0: I think Patrick mentioned that I wanted to to read a poem for something completely different, just a kind of gift, especially since you're a San Francisco author uh, that I admire very much. I wanted to read a poem by Tom Gunn, which is only a a four-line poem, and I'll tell you why your book reminded me of it. The 1970s. There are many different varieties of New Jerusalem, political, pharmaceutical, I've visited most of them, but of all the embodiments ever built, I'd only return to one for the sexual new Jerusalem was by far the greatest fun. Oh, I like that. Other than I just like that poem. What made me think about it in reading your book was the way in which uh, the erotic in this book is kind of a jumping off point for the communal, the way that um, that that's, sex and attraction and love and, and sexual interaction becomes a kind of basis for, for a a community for, and uh, I I thought it was a really beautiful thing. So I was going to ask you if you think of, of yourself as speaking to a readership, speaking to a public, or do you just write for yourself and try to forget about everybody else? I guess a little bit of both. I mean, this this last book reading we had
2: kind of highlighted that like I did write, forgetting that like eventually I may have to read it out loud to people in public and that was a little bit scary. I think a lot of it was for myself knowing that I I personally have benefited from other people in the community uh being visible about their experiences and that has emboldened me to be uh more confident about mine. Um, I talk about the book and I'm wearing my shirt George Michael is one of my idols and that's because basically like when when he got arrested for cruising the bathroom he didn't kind of back down and shame he owned his sexuality he used the press as an opportunity to to comment on how the law was biased against gay men uh, and felt that it was important for him to be visibly open about him being I think a a fucking filthy pig or filthy fucker, or whatever, whatever he said, because he felt that it would help other queer men feel more comfortable with themselves, and it would
1: normalize like this kind of culture and and desire. Well, you got to have faith. <laughs> I just watched the uh, the George Michael edit of Freedom 90 Uncut, and it is a really remarkable film. You brought George Michael's fearlessness into this, where I think. He, he expected and maybe the media expected there to be a shame fest. And he used it as an, as Peter said, as a jumping off point to talk about the needs and the realities of a community. And I think you've done that with Blue Movie um, as well. It's in all senses of the word, a shameless book. And I think most people wouldn't have had the the courage to write it. I'd like to read a passage. This is a triggering passage. I know when Stefan and I were re- recently on a call, it was even triggering for you to return to this space and hear this. So I'm going to read it for you with your permission and give a, a heads up to listeners that this passage may be really triggering. But it's also very beautiful. It's dark, but it's very beautiful in how you've written it. And this is in a scene. 34 of the book. And you write, I find and hit my own vein in less than 10 seconds. I refuse to hit others. I am responsible for my slam only. No fuck ups, no overdoses, at least not for them. I slip the needle in, thread my vein, and pull the plunger back. A plume of red. I am registered. I am an octopus inking through the water. Red is my safe word. Red means stop. Now red means go. I am ready. Go. Something is off. It burns. Strike one. Readjust the needle. Do the delicate work. Pull back again. No ink. I am a dying octopus. Strike two. New spot, new vein, thread, ink, push through the cloudy syrup. I raise my arm and try to touch the ceiling. It's just what we do. It's not scientific. It's not exact. It's a slam pig thing. I cough intensely. It hits. My dark passenger takes over from here. Off I go, lost to the deep. How did you find a way of taking something so dark and rendering it with such lyrical language where did that come from
2: i think a lot of the writing
1: that's specific to the drug
2: use um, was a lot of me kind of exploring why it turned me on i view the drug use as kind of a fetish in a in and of itself and it's sobriety like you're supposed to find healthy ways to engage with sex, but there, but there really is no way to healthily engage in chemsex sex while you're sober. Like it's, it's either one or the other. A lot of the writing around that uh, came to fruition, just kind of exploring why my brain is so turned on by that. And probably a little bit of the kind of like addict obsession
1: was kind of built into that, why it kept on circulating back to to those words you create this metaphor of the octopus, the inking of the registered blood in the syringe, and your phrase, my dark passenger takes over from here. Is that how you experience it when you were part of this chemsex culture? Did you feel there was a passenger that took control of you? So, I mean, so the dark passenger is kind of uh,
2: like a nod and a reference to Dexter. also in the horror genre um but he also talks about how um his dark passenger kind of creates an obsession and a a motivation to kill uh and ironically he goes to 12-step meetings for that in season two uh but there's i think a lot of parallels to it i think um because it is a fetish for me i think it is something that will never not be sexy in my head i think my mind will always look at that scene and be driven by it and even if that activity uh doesn't positively benefit my life now and i know that i can't partake in it there's still an aspect of my brain that's always going to be turned on and enticed by it and yeah i would call that the dark passenger and i think when i actually do give in to to using the substance that's when the conscious me that says hey it's not logical for you to be doing this. This isn't improving your life right now. Uh, it's gone. And the passenger takes over and kind of steers, uh, steers my course until, the, until they crash.
0: You know, I, I'm a teacher, a writing teacher, Stefan, And uh, I have students, graduate students who are writing uh, addiction and recovery narratives. And I, I wonder, I can't help but ask, like, what advice would you give them? I mean, I really like the advice
2: that I was given that, like, in the first draft, put everything out on paper, like that draft doesn't have to be seen by anybody else. It doesn't have to be released. I think there's a very therapeutic quality just to to formalizing your thoughts and putting them on paper. Um, And then if you are releasing it to an audience, uh, I think do go through it with kind of that more critical eye, examining how much you want to reveal to yourself whether that's just revealing it to your friends, your family, uh, or if there's kind of a professional element to it, like I'm licensed in California to practice law. Uh, we definitely read the book with the lens of seeing what would be a liability to my license and, and that definitely informed how certain events were depicted, uh, whether certain scenes made it into the book or not and how we talked about them.
1: Peter, you, you may have even been the person who reminded me of of this advice from the great poet Carl Phillips. If you decide at the last minute to edit something out, you're not a chicken shit. And if you decide in a draft that you want to reorder things, or you want to add something, you're not a chicken shit. But when it's just you and the page, and you can't put it down then you're a chicken shit. (laughs) 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 And I'm sure I'm paraphrasing and not getting it quite right, but the spirit is absolutely true that the fearlessness has to come when it's just you and the page. And if you're scared to put it down in private, there's no hope. And maybe that is some of the advice to, to your writing students, which is, it's just you and the page. The world isn't going to see it um, until you decide. And and then you should be so lucky that anybody would even want to read, right? But um, I remain struck by the fearlessness that you brought to the page. There was nothing that you didn't say. And sure, there were things we edited out because they were they were things that it was the right time to edit out but what was it like in the writing process? How, how much of the writing process was actually part of the recovery process?
2: I don't think initially the writing process was what I considered to be part of my like, recovery process. Um, my friend, Perbo, uh, is also writing a book. He's like the psych department chair at UC Santa Cruz. So we had like study sessions together like every weekend on Saturday and Sunday, for like four hours we would get together and write um and i know for me like i'm a little scatterbrained like just to kind of stay focused and on track i just kind of wrote whatever like came through my head so if if it was like deep dark secrets they made it to paper if it was random musings they made it to paper and then kind of in the second pass around i kind of like edited a little bit to hopefully make it make more sense and then
1: that process repeated uh until the version that's up today Herman Melville said that one of the most difficult things you could attempt to do in life was take a book off the brain. He said it was akin to removing a painting from the canvas. You might ruin the painting uh, in the process, and it might not be worth the time. And um, you found the discipline to write. I know you wrote every single weekend, and I think most people who succeed, this extraordinarily rare and difficult thing of writing a book, they have a discipline where they just decide it's a job they're going to write. They don't meander around wishing the muse would show up and all of that sort of stuff, which we can find a thousand excuses not to write, but you gave yourself a real discipline if I remember correctly, where you wrote every single Saturday, no matter what, was that discipline hard to find in the writing process, or did it, did it um, enable you to access, you know, these these pretty dark passages from your past? How did that play out for you as you were finding the book and taking it off the brain?
2: Well, I think it definitely helped. To have deadlines i think if this was just something where it's like oh i want to release a book let's like maybe get to it it would never happen but yeah no i do think like scheduling time helped i think the, the routine aspect definitely helped with uh sobriety trying to get things normalized and waking up around a regular time every day this week and putting in consistent effort but i think having a writing buddy and having someone to be accountable where when i would wake up on saturday and wasn't really feeling writing knew that someone expected me to be at his apartment and was also going to be doing the same thing and i think having that accountability uh both kept us on on track and also he's like a very awesome kinky queer um psychologist so like we got to balance uh, a lot of ideas back and forth he would have interesting topics about his i would have about mine and we would just kind of share and
1: exchange ideas I think uh, Turbo's real name is, is not Dr. Turbo at uh, UC Santa Cruz, but is, uh, is Philip Hammack, is that right? Philip Hammack, yes, that's him. Yeah, he is, the professor, he is a professor of psychology and director of the Sexual and Gender Diversity Laboratory at UC Santa Cruz. Here's what he had to say about the book. Blue movie is a brave journey of authentic vulnerability. Captivating and raw, these scenes from a life story saturated by stigma and self doubt ultimately tell a tale of agency and self acceptance. Stefan Ferris calls himself the original demon twink, but his refreshingly honest storytelling is heroic in a world that continues to shame pleasure seeking. Ferris is the hero we need in the movement to reclaim sex and pleasure as expressions of radical authenticity. And his story is an inspiration. How does it feel to be called a hero and an inspiration when you have been demonized, when you've been vilified for some of your stances on uh, sexual practices or some of your uh, work in adult entertainment? It's, it must be a little bit of emotional whiplash to hear words like this coming from very accomplished people. I mean especially coming um, from turbo or philip it's it's
2: really kind of just amazing and inspiring this kind of came up with uh the reading we did yesterday too like it feels amazing hearing this feedback especially from people that i admire and respect in the community um there is a chapter in the book where i published a lot of the negative feedback uh that i've received based on my stance on like kind of sexual freedom and porn. uh for example I went to New Zealand to film some like public service announcements about PrEP. And that resulted in me being denounced by the New Zealand AIDS Foundation for uh, being a bug chaser and uh, promoting risky sex. Uh, I've been told not by straight people, but by other gay men that uh, bareback sex is spreading AIDS and killing people. So I think there's a lot of, stigma and internalized homophobia about being sexually open um, within our own community. It sucks that it comes from within our own community, but I definitely appreciate when my peers can kind of
1: recognize, I guess, what I'm doing. I've always found um, as as somebody who lived through the darkest uh, days of the AIDS plague and during graduate school, I was always fascinated by the fetishization and the creation of the very idea of bareback sex. It is just natural sex, but it had to be given a name. It had to be fetishized to become desirable again because the threat of death was so uh, ever present, and uh, I always want to congratulate any pregnant couple on their dedication to Bareback sex, but it's just natural sex. <laughs> so to be denounced for it seems seems a bit extreme to me. But um, you know, deconstructing these ideas, I think, is what matters. That what we call something uh, can create stigma and can create a lot of violence in the world. The wrong the wrong words given to to something natural and and wonderful. Can can create a lot of damage. I think Bros summed it up pretty pretty great. Have you seen the movie Bros? I've not seen it yet. Uh, no, I'm hearing a
2: lot about it. Oh, no. there's basically a throwaway line about why like my generation is so anxious, and the response is, oh, it's because we grew up with AIDS, and these younger kids grew up with Glee, and I think it kind of highlights just like this this fear and the stigma around it, which is hopefully getting better and better each generation. Um, but I think as like, the stigma and fear around HIV subsides and goes away, um, we still have a lot of other things to tackle in the community, whether that's stigma around kink or stigma around substance use or being in recovery. I think as queer people, we, we get to make up the rules around how we love other people and interact with other people in our community. Uh, and that bleeds over into kind of creating our own rules around substance use and not stigmatizing substance use, which, which works in a lot of ways, but then also like may not work
1: in so many ways. I know you take a harm reduction approach to substance use. Um, it's something you write about very eloquently in the book. You, you consider each substance to be sort of a relationship that you have. What is, if this substance were a person, what kind of relationship would you be having with that person? You currently abstain from all substances. um, And, um, but a harm reduction approach says that that might not always be the case. You might decide to have a relationship with cannabis or you might decide to have some relationship with, um, with Molly or something like that. Does that freedom frighten you does it feel like a slippery slope or does it actually help you breathe through the the uh difficulties that come with anybody in recovery
2: i think i'll start by saying i do i do total abstinence like minus poppers um but i still consider my total abstinence program to be part of the broader umbrella of harm reduction like total abstinence is harm reduction but there's many other things that are harm reduction as well as much as i want it to be like oh, I could, I can get through this and not do meth and still do coke and still do all these other drugs. Um, that simply wasn't the case. Like my life didn't completely spiral when I was doing other drugs. Um, but I just certainly wasn't achieving and doing the things that I want to be doing that I'm doing now, uh, being totally abstinent again, minus the poppers. Um, but yeah, I, I guess the way that I view things is, is that things are always still on the table, uh, there's many substances that I don't find problematic at all. Uh, cannabis and psychedelics have never been problematic for me. Um, ketamine has never been problematic. Will I go back to using them? Maybe. I I think for me, I I know they're not problematic, but I like having a couple steps of separation between math. because I in my head I guess it's. If I do start using one substance, then maybe I'll start justifying using another substance. And it's just kind of a, a mental breakdown of how my brain
1: processes, because I'm always trying to justify why I should be doing something. You know, Stefan, just one marijuana cigarette can make you go insane. So <laughs> <laughs> can drinking off. That, that, that's what I've heard. Uh, I, I think one of the most beautiful things about this book is that you um, achieved your one year of sobriety on the publication date of this book um, which was an incredible happenstance that was really joyful to share with you. I wonder if in um, in that context you might read the final scene, uh, scene 77 for us um, to sort of let readers know that well, you're here today, you're talking with us, you survived yourself and you managed to do one of the most difficult things in in life, which is to write a book. Um, So I wonder if you would read scene 77 for us. Yeah, 100%. Scene
2: 77. I sit down at my desk to write. It is 3.33 p.m. There is no legal work to do. The first draft of my manuscript is nearly complete, but there is still more work ahead. One day left to deadline, and that's it. No more of this story. Pressure mounts on several fronts. On a nearby notepad reads my to-do list. Finish the book. Record for the podcast. Post videos. I also have to focus on raising money for AIDS life cycle. I am a team captain. My goal this year is $25,000 and I am so close. My personal best so far has been $18,000. I am on the fundraising leaderboard. Top 50. I can sustain. I will sustain. This is all on the side. The stuff that makes life work down. I run a law practice. I pay my rent. I pay my bills, but not much more. It is stressful and I need to get ahead. My attorney friends are thriving. My sex worker friends are thriving and I am stuck in the middle. I worry, when will clients pay? I have good experiences. I have bad experiences. Things take me longer. I lose track. I lose the thread. I lose out. I have a hard time focusing. Still, no ADHD meds for my psychiatrist because of my substance history. He will not treat me. He punishes me for where I have been rather than supporting where I am going. No time for that. Push through this like everything else. Please focus, Stefan. Please. Phone buzzing, Facebook notification, I'm in debt. Who's competing at IML? I miss Darklands. What's next? I have to write. Please focus, Stefan. Please. Why did I even go to law school? Why did I think I could do this? Scroll TikTok. Fucking psychiatrist. Just write, you asshole. Please just write. Please focus, Stefan. Please. I grab a LaCroix. It's pasteque, Watermelon in French. Four years in high school and another two in college. I am what the French call. Les incompetent, the incompetent ones. I scroll, I see a meme. Listen, lady, let me tell you what mansplaining means. I laugh, I identify with the incompetent ones, but I am not incompetent. I am not stupid, merely distracted. I need to write. Please focus, Stefan, please. Daenerys rests on my bed. She is under the sheet, her paw out, her head on a pillow, a little being looking back at me. She must be accustomed to me making such a commotion all the time. Still, she loves me. I crawl in bed with her. I pull her body close to mine and put my arms around her. I make her the little spoon. I set an alarm and take a quick nap. I dream I'm hosting a drag show. Daenerys is providing commentary in the confessional cutaways. I don't know what it means, but I wake well rested. I am awake. I focus. I sit down at my desk to write. And I write, I am going to be okay. I am going to be okay. I am going to be
1: okay. And indeed, you are going to be okay. I think you've done something absolutely remarkable with this book, Stefan, and we're so proud to be the publishers of it. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And uh, I hope this conversation uh, does as well. Yeah, no, it's been great chatting with you. And I hope you send me the the name of that poem. I want to check it out again. I really liked it.
0: Oh yeah, I'll send it to you. I was just going to say, I think, you know, there are books in the world that help a lot of people and there are books that are really well-written and then there are the rare books that are both. And this is one of them thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. You can find us on Apple, on Google, and anywhere else you might find your favorite podcasts. This is Authors Unbound.